Today's passage is relatively brief as we conclude chapter 9 of Genesis. We'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. I want to invite you to turn there or just look up at the screen as we read the words that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to pen. And we read the following. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah being, sorry, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for having penned and preserved it. Grant that we would hear it and that we would look in earnest faith to Christ. Grant that our time together would be fruitful for his sake. Amen. All right, guys, so here we are at the beginning of 2022, a new year, and I bet many of you have made resolutions. I bet at least several of you as 2021 was drawing to a close, you thought, aha, this is what I'm going to do different in 2022. I know that judging by social media and the news, people are zealous for 2022 to be the year where we can finally put COVID behind us. We just want to get on with life. We, want, we just want a fresh start. We just want to take a big, cleansing, deep breath and get on with life the way it's supposed to be, right? We want something new. Now, many of you have probably made resolutions. 
Some of you, I'm going to say, are probably in the category of you used to make resolutions, but now you no longer do it because you know what happens. You've become too jaded, and you've become too... We, we would never... Let me take that back. We don't call ourselves jaded and cynical. We're realistic. That I'm not going to make a resolution because I know it's going to happen. I'm just going to not do it. I'll try. I may, in some initial burst of zeal, commit to spending a lot of money on a, on a subscription or on a purchase. To It's going to be the thing, and then, and then uh, whatever. And so now you've done it so many times that you're like, forget it. Let's just, let's just skip it all together and don't even. And to your realistic heart, your jaded heart, that, 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 that lacks a spark of hope, there's a word for you, but you got to hold on a minute. I just don't want you to feel left out. Because in a lot of people, there's hope that springs anew every year. All the time, we are looking forward to something new. And, and this passage is a great passage, fortuitous, that, that God would ordain that on this day, the first Sunday of the year, we would be looking at this passage, which is the passage where we see that a fresh start has just been given. A fresh start has just occurred. New opportunities, and what do we do with it? What do we do? In this passage, we see right on the heels of God's gracious covenant with Noah that, that new relationships, new assurances, new provisions have all been given. There's a new order <coughs> that's established. New, new, new. But there's one thing that remains the same. The human heart. Indeed, if you look back at chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord says that despite the fact he's going to not destroy the earth, despite the fact that every intention of a person's heart is wicked, even from their youngest days. So this time, as we learned last week, that we live in now is borrowed time. It's a time of forbearance where God is graciously, patiently waiting for all his sheep to come in. But it's not being preserved, prolonged, because of the general goodness of people. Our hearts are wicked. And so God gives a fresh start to Noah and his family. And everything around them is new. <clears throat> and what do they do? Well, wherever you go, there you are. And so, despite the fact that they had almost certainly been geographically displaced, do, do you really believe that they floated above the earth for, for months and months and months and months and then landed right exactly where they, where they, where they started? I doubt it. In fact, I highly doubt that the Tigris and the Euphrates are the Tigris and the Euphrates of creation. We talked about that earlier, that these are all names given to things in a post-flood world, which is why they don't intersect the way they intersected in the Genesis 
1 account, Genesis 2 account. So they were most likely geographically displaced, surrounded by new surroundings, and they fall back into old ruts. Indeed, this passage is a very disappointing passage. Right on the face of it, this passage is very disappointing. Two things happen right off the bat. We see that the righteous man, Noah, falters. When it says in verse 20 that he was a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard, the, the ESV puts that a little awkwardly so you can think that it says he began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Now, the began should actually be on the planting a vineyard part. So he started viticulture and viniculture. He started making wine. And for whatever reason, he got so plastered that he passes out drunk naked. And in our culture, even in our culture, we understand that if someone gets so drunk that they pass out naked, that it's a sign of disgrace. That they're, they lack discipline and self-control. And in that culture, it was an egregious slip-up of decorum and modesty. And we see that sin comes oftentimes when we least expect it. The righteous man Noah, think about this. He had lived 500 years in a pre-flood world where wickedness abounded, where wickedness was everywhere. Violence, it says, filled the earth. And he stood strong. He was given a command to build an ark. And he did. He withstood the jeers and the mocking of countless inhabitants of his surroundings for nearly a hundred years as he built the ark. And he did so steadfastly. The day of the flood came, he enters the ark, and he's faithful for 13 months as he's in this boat, dark, floating, bobbing. He's strong. His first inclination when he gets off the boat is to worship. Oh, he was righteous. No wonder his father Lamech at his birth, back in chapter 5, had said, this is the one, this is the one that's going to give us rest. And then, what do we see? Drunk, passed out in his tent. Brothers and sisters, none of us, none of us is free from the power and the pull of sin. None of us. Noah, having been given a fresh start, lapses after what you would have thought the thick of the battle is done. There are so many practical lessons in there. When it says that your enemy is roaring, prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour, it's sometimes easier to be strong in the thick of battle 
than it is back in your tent. Noah was prepared to face the onslaught of the seed of the serpent when it was out there. But at home and his quiet, there he lets his guard down and then it is that sin pounces. And his own sin shows us how sin so oftentimes works for us in that his sin becomes an occasion for other people's sin. Sin is never isolated. So his sin of shamefully degrading himself, passing out drunk naked, is then an opportunity. It creates the occasion for the sin that lurks within his youngest son, Ham. And it says his youngest son, Ham, in verse 22 of chapter 9, it says, Ham sees his nakedness. Now, quite frankly, we don't know what that means. Uh, there's a lot of people, when you look at the response of Noah, there's a lot of people who say that response is too severe for this to be taken at face value. And, and so it is true that the Hebrew often, just like every language, has euphemisms, has figures of speech, okay? And it's true that in, that in the Old Testament, in, in the law th throughout the pages of the Old Covenant, uh, to uncover or even to see someone's nakedness is a euphemism for something else. And so there's a hypothesis then that what happened here is that Ham, the youngest son of Noah, does some horrific act to his father, and thus the use of the euphemism. But that doesn't really square with, if, if, if see his nakedness in verse 22 of Ham is not literal, then why is such a big deal made of just a verse later of Japheth and Shem literally not seeing the nakedness of the father. So what I think the issue is, it's, it's not that we're confused by the response of Noah. Our own sinfulness causes us to downgrade the severity of what happened. And what's going on here, what we're seeing here, is just a continuation of what you saw back in chapter 4, 5, and 6. Sin always starts an avalanche. Sin is never isolated. Not only does sin oftentimes become the occasion for other people's sin, but sin snowballs. One man's action snowballs and extrapolates out over time. Especially when it's a shared culture, a shared value. And what we see here in Ham is the sin of violating the fifth commandment. He sees his father passed out naked. And what's his inclination? Quite frankly, he has the sense of humor of many of us. He sees something that's shameful and he laughs. It's a joke. 
But in so doing, he makes a mockery of his father, which in the word of God is a grave offense. It's grave, not just in the old covenant, but the propensity that we have to mock and to see others, the people that we should revere, the people that we should honor, to see them as sources of mere amusement, of sources of contempt, as sources of derision, that sees the elevation of self and that other people exist for my pleasure and my good, it starts even then branching out and mushrooming and becoming a big, big thing. And so it's a sad passage. But Noah wakes up. He's informed of what's happened. And speaking as a prophet, he says, Ham, you are my youngest son. He doesn't say that. I'm explaining the logic. Ham, you're the youngest of my sons. You have done this. Therefore, your youngest son will bear the consequences. And so Canaan is the youngest son of Ham, just as Ham was the youngest son of Noah. This passage is actually not about Ham and what Ham did. It's not about Noah and what Noah did. It's about Canaan. That's why, look back at these verses real quick. Ham is never called Ham. What's he called? Ham, the father of Canaan. Japheth had children. Shem had children. Why isn't Shem introduced as Shem, the father of Arxaphad? Or Japheth, the father of Jubal? No, only Canaan is mentioned. Because this passage is saying something about Canaan. Remember, who was this written to? Israel. When was this delivered? Most likely while they were wandering in the desert. And at this time, at that time, what task had they been given? They have to drive out the Canaanites. And so what they're being reminded, they are being given a glimpse back that these enemies that they are about to face are not some newfound threat. This this is the continuation of that thread that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where there is conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this propensity for sin has to roll out over time from the time of Ham, but by the time it reaches the Exodus, the sin of the Canaanites has reached its full. Remember that the point of the 400 years in Egypt was not to teach Israel some sort of lesson. We are told in Genesis 15.3 why they're going to spend 400 years in Egypt. It's because the sin of the inhabitants of the land had not reached its full. In fact, Noah wants to drive, not Noah, Moses wants to drive home the point that what's about to happen, what's about to go down in the land of Canaan is not that you guys are so awesome, you're so racially, so ethnically, so morally superior. No, what they're, they're told, 
So the Lord is about to fight for you. The, this is in Deuteronomy 9, chapters, uh, verses eight, uh, uh, 28 and 29. This is about to go down, and you're about to go in there, and I'm going to fight for you, and I'm going to drive these people out. And then in 28 and 29, it says, when this does happen, don't you think for a minute that it's because you're so righteous and so wonderful. It's only because of their wickedness that this is happening to them. This goes back to what God says here, which goes back to what God says in Genesis 3, 15. So this passage is sad. We see the occasion of sin, how sin oftentimes assaults us when we have our guard down, we fought the good fight, we're at our very end, and we think it's all clear, and that's when sin pounces. Let that be a lesson. Be strong and bear the armor of faith all the time. We see the consequences of sin and how it snowballs and how it does not take place in a moral or sociological vacuum. Sin has consequences. But then most sadly, this chapter ends with verses 28 and 29 bringing up a familiar refrain. It says, it says in verses 28 and 29, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's, it's picking up the refrain from the Sethite genealogy back in chapter 5. And so thus we see that chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 to this point have been a glorious parenthetical comment on that genealogy. And now, at the end of verse 29, the genealogy of Seth from chapter 5 comes to its conclusion. They all died. Lamex. Noah's father's grand hope that this would be the one who would give us rest goes up in smoke. Noah did not bring us rest. Given a new start, what happened? He fall on his face, or more literally, on his back. Passed out naked. His son's sin continues. His son's sin snowballs. Thus, the era of Noah ends, and we still look for the one who would give us rest. Brothers and sisters, the people of Israel were looking for rest too. And that rest seems to take forever to come. And faced with a world where the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are in continual conflict. And you see a profound curse placed upon the people of Canaan. It's important to know that the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He has come. He himself is our peace. 
and he himself is not ashamed to have Canaanite blood in his veins. Rahab, the prostitute, was a Canaanite. And her blood is in our Lord's veins. What does this teach us? It teaches us that as far as the curse is found, as far as it is found, he comes to cleanse, to renew, and restore. Romans chapter 8 tells us that the earth itself is subject to futility and the curse. Everything is waiting for the clean slate, the fresh start. And Jesus came that all might be made new. So this passage, though in one sense it is a sad look at the continuation of what happens when human dead hearts are placed in a new environment, which is to say we contaminate it because the problem is not the environment, the problem is us. This passage reminds us that we are looking forward to one who cleanses us and we give thanks to God that he sent his son because he is the one who gives us rest. He's the one who lifts the curse. He's the one who makes the unacceptable acceptable. He's the one who gives us the new heart that the prophets prophesy. Ezekiel, in chapter 36 of his book, says that the day is coming when the Lord will give us a new heart. That heart that God, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 17, says is only wicked all the time. God is giving us a new one. And he does so by his spirit, applying the work of Christ to us. <clears throat> now this passage finally teaches us a great object lesson that is the failure of, or the great shortcoming of the clean slate model of salvation. You've heard the gospel presented that way, that Jesus comes to wipe our slate clean. When Jesus comes, he takes away the guilt of our salvation and he gives us a fresh start. Clean slate. This is that model of salvation presented for you. God gave them a clean slate. Sin has literally been washed away. And what happens? They sin again. They muck it up. They get, all, they get in the mud and mess it all up and it's all bad right away. The model of the gospel presentation that says that God gives us a clean slate is flawed and it's not right because this passage shows us what would happen if God just gave us a clean slate. We would become dirty in an instant again. So thanks be to God that this is not what the gospel looks like. The gospel does not look like Jesus simply cleaning our slate. He first cleanses us, and then he positively makes us righteous. So you are not a clean slate, a blank slate waiting to be written on. You in Christ are written on, and the word is justified. The word is righteous. 
He doesn't just leave you to wander around, contaminating yourself and your sin all again and need to run back to him to get cleaned up. You, in Christ, are clean. You, in Christ, are righteous. And so, brothers and sisters, this passage shows that the environment is not the issue. The environment won't save you. Wherever we go, there we are. We need Jesus because only Jesus can take away the sin and replace it with righteousness. And that is what we celebrate each week here. And that is what we will celebrate here in the sacrament. Let us pray.